You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Regular listeners will know that we're a little Sydney-centric on this podcast and it's only natural because we live in the Harbour City. So every now and then we know we need to get out and see other places. So today we're going to find out what's been happening in Melbourne. We're recording this episode in September 2019 and we've been watching the recovery of the Melbourne property market alongside Sydney's, of course, with interest. Now, the market here peaked a few months after Sydney's peak back in June 2017, although surely the signs of what was coming must have been there at the time for anyone who cared to look. Now, the timing of the bounce back appears to match Sydney's, although not quite the same intensity. In this episode, we'll get the inside scoop from David Easterbrook, Director of Elite Buyer Agents, which he established with his wife back in 2011. His wife, Kim, I meant to say. They have two offices, one in the inner east suburb of Hawthorne and the main office in Bayside, Brighton, and they help both owner-occupiers and investors buy quality properties in the inner suburbs of Melbourne, sort of similar to my remit in in, uh, Sydney. David and Kim also own a property management company, which I don't, (laughs) so very brave of you, Elite Property Rentals, and the information they glean on tenants greatly influences where and what they purchase for investors. Now, previously, David was in the mortgage broking industry for 20 years, working as a broker and a banker for companies such as Aussie, ANZ, Suncorp and Macquarie Bank. Now, thanks for joining us, David. We're really looking forward to your market insights. So what got you um, (laughs) so passionate about the uh, property industry? Probably a whole lot of negatives, actually. I mean, um, as a everyday buyer, when we were when I was in mortgage broking, um, we f- we saw a lot go on, mm. and, and effectively, a lot of my clients were either going to be, well, they're either going to be investors that bought a property that was a great property to buy, they're going to be an investor that followed the crowd and followed the sheep, and they followed what their mum and dad told them, and they and they followed effectively the wrong advice, mm. and a lot of times they were buying just they were buying the wrong types of properties, rubbish to mm. be honest, and for my allowed to say that. Um, whereas <laughs> other, other people were buying great properties. And mm. as, a, as an inexperienced person, I was looking at the, the, the two data and going, well, why yeah. is this guy buying this beautiful single front in Elwood and the property's doubled in a few years' time? And yeah. this other person has paid the exact same amount. They've gone out 50Ks out from a suburb and bought in a new estate for almost the same amount of money. But three or four years later, the, the, the value differences that would come back mm. when they come back to buy another property were so significantly different. I was lucky enough to, um, I guess, uh, have some of these older investors take me under their wing and go, yeah. hey, Dave, this is how it works. Yeah. And so that's where it all started. Interesting you say that around broking because, um, you know, we do see lots of clients, you know, and probably more than, say, you know, buy, in terms mm. of it's well, a would. service, it's more of a, you know, you know higher Turn volume mm. um, yep. service. And 
you also see a lot of clients that you don't work with, right? And so, you know, if you actually take a bit of interest in their situation, you learn, you know, through just what they're, you know, what worked for them, what has, what's their mistakes. Um, so it's interesting because that's pretty similar to me. I would yep. see, you know, clients and I think, well, how have they done that? When did they buy that? How did that perform? Or oh, they bought that place. That hasn't gone up for 10 years. And so that's how you get a lot of, you know, learnings and I guess, you know, figure out what's to do and what not to do. So that's where you're curious, obviously, because I don't think everyone's as curious as that. They just don't even question. Yeah, I mean, look, curious is one word. I'd, I'd probably use the word care, to be honest. Mm. I mean, most of my clients are really nice people, mm. but they weren't They weren't like high flyers and many multi-millionaires. Mm. They were just everyday normal Joe Blows, but they just weren't getting the right information. Mm. Um, and there's nowhere to get information, by the way. I mean, even our data down here in Victoria is controlled by you know, the REIV and so forth. And so there's nowhere they can get data. That's a problem. Mm. There's nowhere they can get advice. They don't learn it in school. There's no real courses they can mm. take. Mm. Um, and effectively, realistically, where people are getting their, their information or their ideas is from their social groups. They're, and they, mm. they actually don't even know where they can go and get any information. They think the real estate agent is the person that's going to give them all the information. But for some reason they sort of forget that the real estate agent doesn't work for them. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and it doesn't matter effectively um, where the real estate agent is, but wherever the real estate agent is, of course, that's the place to buy. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and and so, and but a lot of times it is more than that though. It is cultural. It is, mm. it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, cauldron of a whole heap of reasons why people buy these type of properties. Mm. And even the prices they spend, how much they spend, why yeah. they buy mm. them, how long they have, what their, their, their goals are and yeah. what their plans are. And so once you actually take a little bit of care and you, and, you, and you sort of put yourself into their shoes and you go, well, hold on, I've, I've, I've mm. been down this path before, um, and you actually care about what their outcomes are, well, it's amazing what happens after that. I mean, it's so true. I mean, you, you, you only... Your only opportunities you can see is what you know, right? Yep, and correct. so, you know, if you've got family there that are giving you ideas, they're only going to give you ideas that what they know about, right? And if they think, you know, you shouldn't spend more than a million dollars, that's too expensive, and you get advice from them, then you go and buy something that's cheap or, you know, et cetera, or they, what their stories are. So, or across you, the road from mum and dad. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. we always know that's Buying a bad well, idea. Even their parents' house. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, had, I had a client who called me up only probably a few weeks ago. The house next door to mum and dad's has come up, should I buy it? Mm. And this place was literally the worst property in the whole entire world as an investment you could possibly want to buy. Mm. <laughs> I had an hour conversation with them and then literally mm. it was probably seven kilometres from a train station in the middle of absolutely nothing nowhere. There was no reason not to buy it whatsoever except mm. for it was next to mum and dad's house. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and mum and dad's house has gone up recently, so it's good investment, so you should buy as well. <laughs> Yeah. Sort of, yeah. yeah. Maybe, but that's yeah. people even think about that well, far. Yeah. You know. Well, it's actually this particular location has actually significantly gone down since the Chinese buyers have left Melbourne. Um, yep. So so this oh, particular. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can. I'll be careful. Um, but, but it has. I mean, a lot of these areas have gone down significantly yeah. and because they were artificially increased. Right. And effectively, I guess Melbourne is a multicultural area. Yeah. Um, and I guess if you're looking for safety and if you want to buy a property which is mm. going to be, you know, ongoing for the long term and, you know, we're talking 20, 30 years and hopefully we never have to sell and we can rent it out when we're sort of retired, um, then again, we're, you know, are these the type of locations that all people who can afford properties in the future, whatever price they may be, are they more likely to be there at point A or mm. point B? Mm. Um, I so guess- what area is that, just out of curiosity? 
Well, point B, that's out, miles out in their suburbs, and point A is nice and close to CBD. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the Chinese buyers, like, where were they? Glen Waverley. Glen Waverley. Glen okay. Waverley, Mount Waverley, Box Hill, and thereabouts. Yeah. Um, then there's a different type of um, Chinese buyer as well. Then, of course, you've got the more wealthy, who, of course, is Canterbury Q. Yeah. Um, and effectively, they are very, very different, but it's a very different world today. Like 2016, mm. 2017. Uh, I'm not exaggerating when I can probably tell you that I don't even remember winning against a, a Chinese buyer in 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like literally I don't even remember it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd almost have to go to a client and say, this property's worth $3.3 million, but you need to pay 4.3. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very hard to get a client to say yes to that. <laughs> well, it's sort of funny, isn't it? Because, I mean, we had the same thing in certain suburbs in, in Sydney as well. Yep. And you go to the, the auctions and you watch the way they bid and mm-hmm. they just bid differently because the value to them is different than it is to, say, mm-hmm. you know, Australian-born and bred yep. family that's trying to buy the house. They're making judgment calls on a bunch of whole different criteria and so, therefore, the value is different. Mm. And I actually think they're quite smart. We have a lot of people who actually, I guess, who are scared yeah. of Chinese buyers and they, mm. they sometimes also, I, I personally think, don't haven't really assessed their, their style very well at all. I think they bid brilliantly. Mm. I mean, in your in your podcast with um, Damien Cooley, what did the well, first thing he said? <laughs> Stop momentum, get momentum yeah. out of an auction. What mm. does a Chinese buyer do? Mm. They pull the momentum out of a, out of an mm. auction, and they do it brilliantly, and well, they do it frustratingly. They do it differently mm. down here. Then in Sydney, I definitely did not observe that. I observed them bidding and bidding with a lot of FOMO. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, no. really different type mm. of bidding, and it was just lit. Literally, sort of using their fingers to try to calculate, <laughs> you know, sort of strange sort of behaviour. And you're looking at them, thinking, well, "How are you working out what this is worth?" You know, mm. yeah. But there was definitely that we saw some properties go. I remember going to an to an auction in North Ride. We want to talk about Melbourne here, but anyway, um, that you know there was 22 registered bidders. I remember that two Guilo, yep. you know, yep. us included. Yep. Um, so 20 of yep. Asian descent, and yep. we're we're making generalisations. Obviously, yep. if we think mm. they're all Chinese, but. They just went nuts. And this particular property we had thought would have been, look, top dollar for it would have been a, a little bit over a million. Yep. And it went sailing over that for another couple of hundred grand, you know, mm. and it was just nuts. And they were fighting it out against each other. And there was like ego involved. You could just see this craziness yep. on mm. the phone, getting more money from somewhere else. So well, it's, a, it's their strategy as well. I mean, we used to have a lot of Chinese clients at that time. Um, mm. And literally they would actually tell us what their strategies were like, and it was literally they would all talk to each other in Chinese. So, of mm. course, we'd hire some Chinese speaking people who uh-huh. could stand behind them and listen to exactly what they're saying. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and we're listening on the phone and going, okay, we know exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just got to go to beat them their own game. But at the end of the day, now it's different. So we realistically, in this particular market, now market I, I call post-election versus pre-election, mm. yeah. Our post-election um, market is absolutely so different to our pre-election. Like we yeah, literally, overnight. when we were, yeah, it mm. was like that Sunday after the election. A after I'd woken up from a party, yeah. <laughs> the day after. Yeah. yeah. From that Thursday, from that Sunday to that Thursday, we would have signed up mm. maybe somewhere close to somewhere between twelve to fifteen, sixteen clients mm. in that time, all waiting. And in, and if you want to talk about an elf in the room, I would love to have that one assessed because we see. When markets are going down, that's when they should have been buying mm, and absolutely. we'd be ringing them. But, of course, then, of course, when the market has ch- it's changed and, of course, mm. yes, Liberals got in and uh, yeah, now... It was a big certainty. upset, though. Oh. Still, people upset. are sheep, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does, are. It, we are. We're all sheep, mm. really. I mean, it's just that that whole idea of 
what is different other than, yes, it was an upset, but at the end of the day, if you wanted to buy something, why weren't you buying before? Because everything was really quite depressed. The smart buyers were. Yeah. This is, this is the whole thing, the so smart buyers were. What proportion of investors to owner-occupiers, would you say, of, of that bunch that signed up with you within the next week? Okay, I would probably say that the vast majority of those people were investors. Right. Yeah, vast majority were investors. However, I would probably also say from that point to now, we really do run on about a 50-50 ratio, mm. if not maybe even 60-40, 60% owner-occupiers yeah. at the moment, 40% investors. Um, and what um, what suburbs are you really specialising in for our pre- listeners? Pre- predominantly Bayside, inner eastern suburbs, inner, inner northern suburbs, which mm. there isn't many, by the way. Like you say inner northern suburbs or inner eastern suburbs, mm. there's actually not that many suburbs. Yeah. When you look at a train line, you go, okay, I want to be walking distance from a train line, mm. and you follow a train line out. Well, what have you really got? You've really got yeah. Hawthorns, and from Hawthorns, you've got your Canterburys, and you and you've got your Mont Alberts, and then of course you go out to your um, uh, Blackburns, etc. Yeah. If you then follow different train lines up in northern suburbs, you also then have to add in tram lines as well. But those inner inner suburbs with those beautiful little period homes, which are irreplaceable, is where all the young professionals mm-hmm. want to move and the yeah. ones who've got the incomes, mm-hmm. um, and those incomes will continue. And 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 I guess it's those that safety of that type of asset which can't mm. be replicated. Um, and what price points are you mainly working at? Anywhere probably, look, you don't get too much in Melbourne less than a million dollars. Mm-hmm. If it's less than a million dollars, then realistically you sort of have to blur between are you really an investor or a speculator on mm-hmm. the investment side. Right. Yep. As an owner-occupier, well, everyone has budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether their budget is, you know, X, Y or Z, whether it's 800000 or seven fifty or $1.1 million dollars, realistically, is it a real budget? Have they actually come up with that number and they just popped it out of their head? Mm. Or is it because they've gone to the bank and actually got a real pre-approval? And mm. um, and even that can be another conversation. Like, you know, well, are they trying to limit their LVR to 80% and so they won't go past X, but, of course, they mm. have a whole host of, of non-negotiables. Yeah. yeah. But, but maybe they do need to go into mortgage insurance. Mm. Maybe they do need to go into an 85% lender or 90% and, like, I don't know about you guys, but yeah, I, I definitely point. did. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, I, I have very, like, uh, I mean, it was just very recently a client was, you know, hell-bent, I'm not going to pay LMI, we're saving for a 20% deposit, and then we kind of ran the numbers and said you can afford something at, you know, 850 Yep. Um, you know, and then said, well, why don't you consider paying mortgage insurance? We'll look at it, what it is at 88%. Yep. Because that's kind of the sweet spot. Yep. Oh, actually, you can spend 1.25%. Oh, actually, we can get a house that we really want long-term now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the transaction costs. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and, and by the time you really work out your four- or five-year mm. plan over that property, is it worth paying that little bit of mortgage insurance and is it better off buying a better quality property? Yeah. It's also safer. Mm. And so I guess it just comes down to, but it's not for everybody. I mean, if you... Well, it's safer in two ways. Safer that you're probably getting a better asset, yep. you know, because you're getting either something a bit more scarce generally... Yep. And then safer also because you can buy something you can grow into as a family um, and not have to sell in three to five years' time where you might buy an apartment, for example, that might just suit you and then you've got to pay stamp duty again and sell it. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned apartments, I guess, because that's probably the, where, where we as Melbourneites see the big difference between Melbourne and Sydney. Mm. We, we see that as probably one of the biggest differences. And we mm. have a lot of Sydney investors come down to Melbourne because they go, well, I'm, I'm, I'm out of Sydney. Um, uh, and what happens is they come down here expecting a bargain 
And we sort of feel like, well, so, well maybe maybe Adelaide might be more appropriate for you. <laughs> yeah. um, what do you call a bargain? What, what do you term a bargain? I don't, I don't term anything a bargain, to be honest. It's words I don't use. I don't think there's any such thing as a bargain. I think if a property sells for a million dollars, that's market value. I, yep. I, I don't mm. believe in... What do you think is, they want, though, when you, when you say they want a bargain? I, I think they want the feeling that they've won. Right. A lot of people want that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The feeling that they've yeah. won. No, no, yeah. It's not actually a price. It's not a number. It's, I think it's a feeling. Mm, um, it's elephant. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and I think it's what hap- what a lot of people are really expecting also from people like us as buyer agents. Oh, yeah, true. They're employing us to go, well, okay, I'm, I'm after, you know, I'm, if I'm, I'm after a bargain or, yeah. or something to something that effect. Something that nobody else has got access to. It's like the mm. myth of the off-market. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And, and and realistically, you know, I, I, I sometimes try to tell my clients, I wonder why I haven't bought one off-market property. Um, but... Mm. Again, we bought a few, but not that many. We were actually talking about this in the office. No, the but other day. myself, myself personally, like, yeah, is, yeah. Is, you know, and, and realistically, it, it doesn't make a difference whether it's off market or on market. No. It mm. comes down to what it's what it's worth and what the yeah. value is and what and you can negotiate. Never accept what it's worth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but you might want to win the right property. That's yep. that's what you definitely want to win. You yep. don't want to lose there. You don't want to be like, I bought the wrong property. So you know, but I think on price, that's mm. sometimes hard to win. Right? That's the. You know, you could definitely get a good property, but if you're trying to get it for a bargain price, that's where I think you probably got to admit that you're going to have to pay a good price. You yeah, know? but that's where people, that, I hear what you say about the wanting to feel like they've won. Quite often they'll buy crap yep. for yeah. a really cheap price that's what I mean. and, and feel like they've won. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's anchoring. Whereas they've actually lost. It's anchoring 101. Mm. I mean, jump on a YouTube, put in anchoring sales and that's real estate. Yeah, um, I, I, it's it's mm. not that difficult, you know. Mm. This is a bargain at nine hundred. Mm. We could have sold it for a million. Oh, I'm going to give it to you for eight fifty. Bye. Yeah. It's when like, realistically, it's worth seven fifty. Yeah, yeah. Hello, <laughs> so, you're the mug that paid more. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I mean, and we we get some really bad and really unfortunate stories too. We have a lot of older yeah. people who might come to us. So our, mm. I mean, our, our name used to be advisory, so it used to be elite elite property advisory. Mm. But we used to get so many phone calls on a Monday. I've just bought a property. It's in uh, Docklands. Uh, happened mm. a lot, um, and uh, they've just had valued it and evaded it four hundred thousand dollars less. And these were people who couldn't afford mm. a four hundred thousand no. dollar loss when they're seventy five years old. Yeah. They've got one asset. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, they didn't have the knowledge, or they didn't have the resources, or they didn't have the people around them to say, "There's people who can help you out." Mm. Well, they realised too late that yeah. they were making a mis- that it's easy to make a mistake, and that's yeah. just it is it's tragic. Yeah. So when you talk about you know the uh, the interstate investors yep. coming to Melbourne, but in terms of well, you know, overnight you got pre auction. Sorry, pre-election market, yep. post-election market. Yep. Has it been uniform? I mean, back to the apartments, for instance. You yep. know that Melbourne's been mm. pretty, pretty well known for being oversupplied in apartments. Um, have apartments recovered? Uh, All apartments. <laughs> <laughs> the crystal ball part of will they recover? I, I think eventually one day Melbourneites are going to have to come to the realization that apartments are going to be necessary. Yeah. The the issue which, and, I, and you guys have spoke about this before, is that the developers are not building them because of profitability. I buy a lot of development sites for a lot of developers. I develop myself. Mm. Um, when you're talking about profitability, well, at the end of the day, if there's no one out there buying four bedroom, three bathroom, two living area apartments, they're not going to build them. Yeah. Um, but it's the egg, it's the chicken or the egg mm. type type of um, scenario. But eventually it's going to have to happen. When? I don't know. might not be in our lifetime, but it, mm. it will eventually happen. Um, I think it's almost getting there in Sydney. Yep. I don't think it's there yet. Like I think when first-time buyers completely uh, give up on owning a home mm-hmm. in an area that they want to live, 
And I feel like they've got an opportunity right now. They feel like they can get something in the inner west. I feel like they can get something down more towards Cronulla or the, on the northern train line, and they're happy with those. Mm. But it, once those kind of go up in value, I think that that's when, you know, the apartments will probably take that real next kick. Mm. Um, because it's also the stock gap of townhouses, so that's mm. quite popular with, with fam- young families. You know, you have got a bit of outdoor space. But are we building lots of those in Sydney in the, in the in the good areas? Probably not. I wouldn't say lots, but there's certainly we we certainly started looking at townhouses as an option for young mm. families that couldn't afford a house. Yes. Some years ago, you know, mm. when really when the houses just tipped the scale and became unaffordable for a lot of people, um, and quite often they get they might get three bedrooms and parking, yep. uh, as opposed to same sort of money they might only get a two bedroom cottage. Yeah, you know, so in terms of value and longevity for them, yep. there's there's some options mm. in those inner areas. So it's not so much that developers are building them; it's that they have been built. The older ones, yeah, yeah exactly. We're, we're we're similar. I mean, look, you know. The, Six or seven years ago, we wouldn't have probably looked at them. We said, well, no, you know, mm. you can just push a little bit harder and mm. for an extra $50,000 you can buy a house, you know, go mm. back get go back to your bank and go back to your broker and, mm. you know, increase your loan. <laughs> um, you're, you're only a, a tiny so bit away. Days, mm. Well, now, now it's $500,000 difference and it's just not possible. Mm. But I guess our culture here is really is just not that apartment, but the culture is starting to change and it's starting to change in the older demographic. It's starting mm. to change in the downsizers. Right, yeah. But we don't call them apartments, we call them residences. Yeah. Um, right. So you'll see a lot of guy homes. <laughs> well, <laughs> red, the, the residence is, is, a re, is really is a, a top end, you know, we're talking $3 million type purchases yeah. for 200 to 300 it's square meter downsize, isn't it? Mm. It's a beautiful when downsize you, when you property. Can... <laughs> you look at the beautiful 3D rendering pictures and you go, yeah. if only they built it the same as what the pictures looked like, mm. it would be gorgeous. Um, Are these in like Albert Park, East Melbourne? And Malvern East, okay. Camberwell, Canterbury, the inner suburbs. Most most downsizers, um, they really stick in Melbourne. They, yeah. they want to retire where they live now. So if they mm. live in the eastern suburbs, yeah. and, I, and I don't even mean eastern suburbs, if they live in Malvern, they want to retire in Malvern. Right. Yeah. If they retire, if they live in Kew, they want to probably retire in Kew. Mm. That's mm-hmm. where their friends, their family, their, yeah. their their social networks are. They know what the local coffee shops are. Um, there's a few companies who, who have done a lot of research around the fact of how far they want to be, and the average distance is 500 metres. <laughs> mm. um, oh, I love it. Imagine there's a client. You're going to be looking for a long time. Mm. Um, uh, but I guess if you have spent 30 years there. You've got a you long know, time to ev- wait. Well, yeah, but everything's <laughs> yeah. established. I mean, you, I mean, I guess there's, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% certain about this, but I would imagine a fairly small percentage of people are prepared to completely uproot their life and go, that's it, kids are flowing the coop, I'm out of here. We see it all the time. I mean, mm. we, we, we literally just signed up a client who's looking for a, a beautiful residence in, in Brighton and it's going to be right behind Church Street where yeah. everyone wants to live mm. and this particular street called Well Street has completely utterly changed. All the houses are all so, being so knocked down. So is that your search Your search. Area is one street. I, w- I wish <laughs> <laughs> it, it made it easier and not easier at the same yeah, time. Yeah. But yeah. but um, uh, but it is one particular street which every single house has mm. been knocked down, and they are building for downsizers. And yeah. and the the population is aging, and those type of people are selling homes worth uh, let's call it three or four million dollars, which. Realistically, they don't get too much change when they then go and buy mm, an apartment yeah. for three million mm. and. The benefit in them doing so is the reason why they're holding on to those houses and mm-hmm. not moving. And this is, I think, you know, again, would be a really interesting sort of, you know, conversation to have around, well, how do we fix that problem? And I know there's been a few people have been talking about these mm. extra rooms that, mm. are, that are in these houses. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, eventually they get to a point where they have to move, not want to move, have mm. to move. And when they do move, 
they sell sell the developers the developers yep. at the end of the day right now uh they've gone underground in melbourne as well you know there's uh, mm. if you speak to most of the developers they're they're sitting back and waiting mm. they're smart they're patient um but most of the actual purchases that we sort of do are effectively as i was saying before is mainly bayside and and uh, eastern suburbs, but also inner west and inner north. I mean, that's yeah. realistically is it's our specialty is inner. Ring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, is inner. Is inner. With that little egg shape pointing out towards yeah. Brighton. <laughs> but but no, but no, but apartments. It's it's down here. It's it's really difficult. People just don't have that same cultural acceptance mm. of apartments. So with the uh, inner ring suburbs like the Brightons and the Camberwells. Um, you know, they're premium suburbs. They're like kind of your Mossmans or your Double Bays. Or do, do you call Brighton inner ring? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. How, how close is it? Uh, 12, 12 kilometres. Oh, but yes. it's on the bay. Yeah, yeah, I know it's yeah, on the so, bay. Uh, <laughs> That's why I call it like yeah. an egg because for me yeah. it's just outside 10 Well, you, well we, we call Bayside all the way down to Mentone. Right, so, right. So you'll find oh, that. Frankston? Yeah, no. Oh, that's funny. Frank, Frankston. <laughs> again, Frankston might be a lovely place one day. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, technically it is Bayside. It, it, it might. Technically is, yes. Yeah, so it, yeah. just, it just has some gentrification to go and, yes. and I guess that gentrification has been taking place for a long time. Yeah. Um, when it does take place, mm-hmm. I think it will be probably a lovely place to live. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I, I've talked to clients in, in Melbourne and, um, you know, there's two train lines down the bayside, right? Yes. So you've got the Sandringham line, yep. which, um, you know, that's what everyone wants to be on because Correct. it ends in Sandringham, beautiful spot. You've got Hampton and all yep. other amazing spots on that line. And then you've got the other bayside train line, which is the Frankston line, um, <laughs> and that's not as good. No. But it does track the bay further down and that is gentrifying though along that train line suburb by suburb though isn't it like Aspendale, Edithvale, Bond Beach, Beach. Chelsea I mean we were buying to give you a bit of an idea if you went back to 2012 we were buying little little three bed two bath villas or even one bath villas in places like Chelsea for sub 400 Mm. Um, today you would be looking at around eight hundred thousand dollars yeah. Uh, for the same type of property. Um, is that on the um, good side of Nepean High or the bad side? Well, <laughs> I, 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 I actually don't I'm think there's a... presuming Bayside is good side. No. Is well, I mean, is no, around? so there's... I mean, this is my observation, and, yep. and it'll be interesting to get your thoughts on it, but, you know, if you go down that train line, then there's this really big road called Nepean Highway, mm. Nepean Highway is, I think, maybe eight lanes. Mm. Uh, is it six or eight? Not down there it's not. It's only really four lanes, two on four, both sides. Oh, it's a small Plus highway. a train line. <laughs> yeah, plus the train line. <laughs> plus a train yeah. line. Oh, and it's like about, well, if you're on the left side, which is the bay side, mm. then, you know, everyone wants to be on that side. But on the other side, it's got to cross the train tracks and it's a bit awkward because it's level crossings and things. And, um, you yeah. know, you find that the growth on that side is much stronger than the other side. Subjective opinions. It depends on what you're after because on the beach side of the the road is what we call it. Um, it's a different type of property. Uh, mm. Very, very small little blocks, a lot of townhouses, a lot of apartments. There's a few multi-million dollar properties. So give you an idea, like, you know, a, a seven or $800,000 parcel of land on the water. And I mean mm. on the beach, not on the water. <laughs> so on the mm-hmm. water's probably going to be a bit less. But on the beach um, is going to be maybe, let's call it three, three and a half million dollars. Yeah. There's not many three, three and a half million dollar buyers down there. Mm. When you're looking at the townhouses that are on that side, you still might be, let's call it one and a half, two million dollars for a townhouse, Mm. or you can go over the other side of the train line and the streets are actually quite nice and Mm. and the areas are nice. There's beautiful schools there for kids. A lot of young families are moving into that area. Um, You have a lot of... um, um, uh, I would probably call it they're very similar type of buyers that mm. are buying down there and they are gentrifying. So yeah. 
those young people are saying, well, hold on, I can have, not only can I have great school, good schools, I can also have beach and I've got mm. coffee shops and I've got shops and yes, I might have to be on the train for an extra 15 minutes, but yeah. I, I also get that those, uh, those house attributes that I've been after. Mm. I think it's a smart idea. You've also got scarcity. Yeah. So you also have properties going up in value. You, you, you can't build on the water. So mm. there's, there's only a certain amount of land available. Mm. Behind Chelsea and Bond Beach, Edithvale, Aspendale and those areas, not only is there a huge, big, massive freeway, but there's also huge, big, massive parklands, which mm. are effectively wetlands. So the actual amount of land that's available down there is minute. Yeah. Right. Absolutely minute. And that's the reason why those areas are going up, just purely because of scarcity. Yeah. Then you add and the livability. And also the people. I yeah. think I think the people. So I, I look at people movements probably more than I look at numbers and, mm. and so forth. And if you look at num if you look at people and you actually go to the local shopping centres and the local coffee shops and you see the type of gentrification that's mm. occurring, it's a sign of what's to come. So what yeah. sort of people are you looking for? Young families. Yeah. Young families, nice little young families who've got white collar jobs. Um well, that's not probably necessary, but effectively <laughs> young, young families. Mm. Um they take care, like a, a usual young family that's got a great job and is a, is a you know a good member of society. They're not going to leave their house in a mess, and therefore, mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as an investor, you're not going to have a, a property that's been ruined. Yeah. Um, they're going to have pride in their home. They're going to look after their home, mm-hmm. um, and they're going to make great neighbours as well. So, therefore, attract more people to come down to those areas, mm-hmm. and they're a little bit more affordable. So, down there, again, based on on numbers. Um, you'll find that people will start moving down to there because they sort of are almost, I don't know if the word forced is the right yep. word to use, mm. but their options are limited. Yeah. Because what happens is in Melbourne is you, you have this big gap between Bayside and eastern suburbs. Yeah. Mm. And that, that gap, that train line, I don't even know what the train line's called. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we, no one buys on that this particular little gap in between. Mm. They sort of jump over that gap and they go straight over to the eastern suburbs. So when you say it's a gap, is it a price gap or is it a, a geographical gap, i.e. that it's it's not accessible, that area? It's sort of a bit no man's land? Is that is that what you mean? The difference in the train lines and those type of different things as well. I mean, the, the problem we also have is that, you know, buses – are acceptable in Sydney. There are many, many people from Sydney, and they say they oh, take yes. the bus to work. Yes, yes. Um, for us yeah. in Melbourne, someone says they take the bus to work. We yeah. sort of all have a bit of a giggle and say, well, don't kids take bus? Um, <laughs> it's, it's very unusual to take a bus in Melbourne uh, unless yeah. you're a school kid. Um, and so, <laughs> unless you're on a winery tour. <laughs> or a winery, correct. Um, but <laughs> but it's, it's, it's just probably just not a widely accepted. Yeah. Again, it's, my, it's cultural, I think, mm. um, the mm. difference between your Melbournes and your Sydneys. Um, I mean, we have so many buses that I think recently or only a few months ago they had a a, um, a report run on how many people were actually in each individual bus and there is literally like no one. Mm. <laughs> um, and so now a lot of these buses are stop runs and so <laughs> forth, um, which is a waste of our money. Yeah. They, could, they could be spending money elsewhere. Well, they're overflowing in Sydney. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's two different worlds. We're trying to build trams, aren't we? So it's yeah. a bit. Um, we're going a bit old school. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, whereas I think at the end of the day, with us down here in Melbourne, it really is. It's train, 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 or train because mm. the vast majority of people who have got good jobs are working in CBD or, or like type locations. Yeah. Um, we really don't have any satellite cities like Sydney does. Um, we've tried and we're trying, and in the future well, don't that you might have happen. Ballarat and Geelong. Well, I mean, the regional cities. I mean, but even 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 just a, a satellite area like uh, we've tried to have Dandenong as a, yeah. um, I think they call it a uh, central business district, and mm. um, yeah. and certain areas like that where they've tried to increase the uh, 
the livability of those particular areas. Or put a certain in, industry. Like the Parramatta of Sydney. Or they like Ride, North Ride, where they've got all the pharmaceutical. Macquarie Park. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. So we've tried yeah. all those things, but realistically it's still, I think it's, it takes time and I think yeah. it's, it's all about Jennifer. Well, there's this massive plan, isn't there, the state governments of this $50 billion on a city outer ring train loop that they think they're going to build before 2050. Uh, so it's a big election election promise that he made last year, but that was the idea behind that was all these hubs around the city. But you know that's a long, long time away—thirty, forty years. Well, there's actually a document it's called the 2050 Planning Policy. So we yeah. actually have a document, and you can yeah. actually read it. And it's really, really interesting reading if you mm. want to read about twenty-eight thousand pages. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, but it actually sort of gives you a, a bit of a, a a plan in regards to well, what do we want Melbourne to look like? Mm. Um, because we do have unlimited land. Unlike mm. some, well, well, not Sydney, so but we do have unlimited land. Develop right mm. onto Albury. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it does keep going out, but we, we just can't have the resources. And I guess, mm. but but it's more than that. Culturally, we've changed, or, and not so much we've changed. I think the people are changing. Our young people are changing. Mm. Most of our millennials that will come into our our, our office, and we do look after a, a lot of millennials, and we, we we sort of pat them on the back and try and help them out wherever possible. Mm. A lot of times, their mum and dad will sort of bring them in and go. Hey, do you know what? We don't know, but we know who does know. Mm. Um, and so I think those, they're, they're the lucky ones. Yeah, for um, sure. But they're at least pushing them into the right direction. Say, so, well, maybe get advice on where you should be buying. Mm. Get advice. And they're starting to understand that advice model, which is just is so clever. You know, I wish mm. I had somebody <laughs> probably direct arsenals in, in, the, in, in my younger yeah, years. Yeah. But again. Well, so do you find, what's the stock levels like at the moment? Absolutely and utterly appalling. Um, yeah. I mean, who's going to sell right now? It's near the bottom of the market. Yes, we've gone up 1.5% last month and 1% the month before that. But why would you sell? You're mm. selling because you have to sell. As I tell most of my clients, it's generally speaking 90% death or divorce, 10% other. Mm. But literally it's death or divorce. You just need to work out which one it is. So you're mm. not seeing people taking advantage and upgrading? We, we aren't seeing that much. There, there may be that 10%. Um, mm. we, we're seeing a few people doing that, um, and we actually have, but but very few. Most of the time it's death or divorce. Um, then when I say death, it could be the fact they're going into a home or something mm. to that effect. Um, but generally speaking, it's death life, or divorce. Life, death, I guess, yeah. But I, 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 look, whether it's death or divorce, I don't care which one it is, as long as they're selling. If they're selling, they've got some stock and <laughs> yeah. I can buy it. So. Well, typically with divorce, it might be a more recently renovated property maybe. Mm. Correct. <laughs> and with, with death or, or retiring retiring into a retirement village, it might be the sort of property that gets demolished to be turned into downsizes apartments. Mm. And young people also buying those properties, depends on where they are, so mm. a little bit further out. So in our northern suburbs, for instance, you can go half an hour by train, which is really only about 12 or 15 Ks, and you can mm. buy a house out there for mm. $700,000 on 650 to 750 oh, really? square metres. Um, and effectively young people of mm. all demographics, all gentrif- they're, all, they're all gentrifying mm. areas, they're buying these older 1970s, well, mainly 1970s yeah. homes, um, and they're renovating them, mm. which is great. So they're not knocking them down and rebuilding them. No, well, they can't afford it. They can well, they're nice rebuild. brick-looking houses, yeah. right? They're they just the, need, they need the elbow grease. Yeah. They need, they need yeah. some love and care. Um, they need some modernising. Sort of, yeah. Or pre-war or post-war, the, the brick sort of like nice-looking houses with a bit of a, yeah. a reno. I mean, they are hugging the train lines, though, aren't they? They're all hugging the train lines, and this <laughs> yeah. is the, this is where the young hugging, professionals... you mean, like, literally backing onto them? Or? Well, no, no. no. No, well, that is a bit of a problem, to be honest, because you do when you are buying in Melbourne. I think that um, because they're all aiming for the train lines, a lot of them are buying 
you know, very close to the train right. line. And they go for big prices sometimes, don't they? And they're not factored in. I think sometimes you can hear the train. Dun, 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 yeah. Dun. Um, <laughs> have you noticed that as well a lot in Melbourne? Um, well, I mean, look, there's, there's always people going to be buying on train lines. Again, I guess they're what we would probably call the bargain hunters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and I guess at the end of the day, you know, realistically, they'll probably learn the hard way of mm. why it was a bargain then because it'll be a bargain when they go to sell learn. too. Um, the that's a good run, point. Do the trains run all night? Yeah. Uh, I know they sort of run, well, back in the day, I think they run to like 12. Yeah. Or something to that effect, but yeah. I'm probably, yeah, I'm probably pretty late. Yeah, yeah, pretty late. Yeah. Yeah. They're not, um, they don't finish at 7 o'clock no, at dinner. No, yeah. no. Um, Is I, I, that curfew? <laughs> but, but most of those areas up there, you can still buy those houses, and yeah. I guess it depends on what type of pe- per- person you are, but the young professionals are moving, and what mm. they're seeing, and I saw it on the news uh, yesterday morning, they were talking about the fact that some of these outer areas, which generally speaking were blue-collar sort of areas, are now having their train stations, you know, rejuvenated, mm. spending multiple, multiple millions of dollars. And the the increase in some of these train stations are, are doubling. Um, I mean, they used areas such as like Jakarta and Broadmeadows, which in Melbourne are literally probably, you know, number one and two of our least favoured suburbs, most likely, depends on who you ask. Um, mm. But those particular suburbs are, are literally bursting at the seams in regards mm. to young professionals now taking the train to the C- CBD, which from those locations only takes less than half an hour. Mm. So the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Give us a review on iTunes. A five-star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. Yeah, you actually said about um, young millennial coming in and you helping him buy the right thing. Hmm. Um, when I've looked at Melbourne, there's lots of people going out and buying the wrong things because there's lots of uh, things that they shouldn't be buying. What are some of the things you've seen that a lot of young people have been buying um, that, you know, probably aren't great investments. Have some land packages and apartments in the city and apartments close to the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally speaking, I would probably say more house and land packages out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Can you I, just explain exactly where are these and how much land is available? Uh, there is an infinite amount of land available. Like when I say infinite, I really do mean as close to infinite as possible, literally from here to Esrock. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, it's, and it just keeps going and it's flat and it's volcanic. And... Uh, and it's 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 bad to grow stuff on, but of course they're doing these house and land packages. And back in the olden days, you know, a house and land package in the outer suburbs used to be six hundred square meters, mm. bigger fence, three bedrooms, two bathrooms, two living areas. Today it's two hundred and fifty square meters. Yeah, oh, it's shocking, isn't it? And yeah. it's and it's and it's Lego land, and yeah. they're all the same. And 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 unfortunately, and they've got no backyards. They haven't, so yeah. they've moved all the way out there for a house, but then a house with. No outdoor area anyway. No eaves. It must be hot. No, it's, yeah. it's just cheap construction. Mm. So, so I, I, and I guess those things are again. It's a learning lesson. I wish the whole world would 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 be able to listen mm. to podcasts like these and actually understand that you know what mm. is that really the the right thing for mm. them to buy because they don't know any different. No, mm. they don't. And, and there's that sort of 
social proof that goes with it as well. Their friends do that and, they, and then they think, oh, that must be what you do and mm. someone's successful because they've finally bought a home and they've made it. Yep. Um, oh, I want to do what so-and-so's done. And, well, uh, I can give you a great story of that. I, I, I have a, 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 let's call it a group of friends and I'm about 27 deep in regards to looking after one and after another, which is my, 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 my record. And all these particular, um, this group of friends all bought in places like your Point Cooks and your Tarnates and your Wyndham Vales yep. and so forth because they were house and land and that's what they were culturally mm. taught. That yes, you know, buy land, land yeah. goes up. Um, yeah. What they probably didn't understand was that it's about land value, not land you know, <laughs> size yeah. and content. Um, and effectively they've all then grown up and they've all then now been in Australia and Melbourne for four, five, six years. Mm-hmm. And now their kids are all now turning six, seven, eight, nine and ten and they're going where do I want to send my kids to school? Mm. They've got double incomes. They've got really, really good incomes. And they've mm. paid off most of their houses they bought for yeah. three and $400,000 mm. and trying to get into the eastern suburbs into, you know, some of the, the, the better school zones. And they're really paying for it. And they, yeah. are, they are literally borrowing the most they possibly can. Mm. Um, yeah. They're trying to at least get advice and they're smart enough to get advice and they're smart enough to at least say, hey, look, you know, I've got somebody who can help you out. Um, or, or people who can help you out. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a good thing, people at least getting that, that information out. So how has, say, I remember doing an episode of the show in Point Cook. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I have a visceral reaction to, like, out of suburbia. It really mm. bothers me, um, mainly because I grew up in out of suburbia. Mm. Um, and I remember being with a producer and spending an entire day doing a full recce of the area. Mm. And I actually wrote a blog on it because mm. I really about how to get the the best out of if you're going to buy an area like that, how to really pick the best property. Mm. And it was really interesting too because what I learned about the first subdivision had bigger blocks of land and they continually shrink and shrink and yeah. shrink. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff and maybe I can dredge out the um, the blog I wrote about that and put in the show notes. But so the people we bought for, they were happy and they ended up selling and they made a bit of money and they ended up buying closer in. But how is that capital growth-wise, say over the last 10 years, so yeah. – so if you got, I don't know if this is off the top of your head, I get it, but what what would be a typical growth of a house, say, in Point Cook over the last 10 years versus something that they might want to move to if they bought in the inner areas 10 years ago? Well, strangely enough, it's probably about the same, to be honest. And right. the reason why okay. is because the ripple out effect. But that doesn't mean that's going to be the same in the next 10 years. Right. So effectively that ripple out effect did affect places like we just said Point Cook, and I'm not mm. picking on Point Cook in any particular region. There's actually really nice parts of Point Cook, yeah. nothing wrong with Point Cook. Um, if you actually really want to be specific, or not specific, if, if you want to be even a bit more technical, Point Cook's actually got a little area uh, called uh, Sanctuary oh, yes. Lakes. Yes. It's $2 million <laughs> for a house in the... It's in a little different. It's a golf course. <laughs> yeah. Resort. yeah, yeah. But it's $2 million, and like mm. for $2 million, you know, it's amazing what you can buy for $2 million, which is not in that particular location. Um, so, but again, personal choices and they can, they can buy whatever they want and live wherever they like. Um, but you are right. They, they started out and the, and the developers that bought out there, they were allowed to build them with those sizes and they could sell them for those sizes as they had to pay more for the, for the vacant green wedge land. They then, of course, were able to employ the right barristers and get the right barristers to allow them to re-subdivide these blocks. The councils were allowing them to do it as well. Um, and, of course, now they're re-subdividing these blocks, these tiny little tiny little areas, which realistically, are they are they appropriate for, for those areas? No, they're not. Um, will that change in the future? I really hope it does for, for, for their sake. Mm. Um, do I think it will? No, I don't think it will. I, I really don't think it will. At the end of the day, you know, roughly 30% of our GDP depends on, on construction. We need construction mm. to keep happening. Mm. Um, yeah. 
is that good for the investor or the owner occupier? Well, that's not really relevant to you know, big to, to, macro to the bigger environment. Picture. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think I mean that's interesting around these kind of outer suburbs because there was so much FOMO in the market and so much that brought for everyone who could possibly bought just bought in 16, 15, mm. yep. 17. Something. And Anything. so, you know, you were seeing a lot of um, a lot of people online will say, oh, Melbourne land prices went up 50%, right? <laughs> and, you know, some of these house and land packages, they went up 50% because they could sell them for 50% more because they were such a scarcity. They couldn't release them fast enough. But they've also kind of now done a big backflip. Oh, and now yeah, but isn't some of the, the data's also lying? Yeah, no, you yeah, got to be yeah. careful on data. Because it's about data. rezoning, isn't it? Well, so, no, not so much no. rezoning. Like I know with you guys, they rezoned a lot of in, or not, I say, in Sydney. They, mm. they rezoned a lot of areas, and they and they had automatic and instant uh, change in values. Mm. We've had that too, yes. Mm. But that's yeah. long main roads and so forth, and we call them residential growth zones. But that particular situation happened. It was for a completely different reason. The data said that we had doubled in value. I'll give you an example, mm. Mernda. So I did a humongous study and I did a blog on Mernda, Mernda itself, and this is not picking anybody Mernda, but just on data. So we had um, well, one If about, you want to share it, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> we, 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 we had a, a peak We had a peak body come out and say, Mernda has got the highest capital growth rate in, yes. in Melbourne. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Now that is a lie. Mm. That is the biggest lie in the whole entire world. And it's pretty simple. If 101 Main Street murder sells for $200,000 today and then they go and put a Metricon house on it for $200,000 and sell for $400,000 in 12 months' time, it sells for $400,000. It's got a 100% increase in capital growth, hasn't it? Not it. But that's the way the numbers work. Well, it's true because there's not even when you renovate a house, there's no let alone put a house on a block of land. Look at Turak. I mean, Turak has that as well. Everyone says Turak grew in the peak 20 30 40%. It didn't really grow 20 30 40%. Because the people who are buying six and seven million dollar houses and then and then building six and seven million dollar houses on top of those six and seven million dollar yeah. houses and mm. selling them for fifteen million dollars made either yeah. a million or they sold for fourteen million and actually lost a million. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. so yeah. it's 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 one part, I guess, of our data that's really lacking. It's a really good point because we do talk about the median all the time and how misleading it is, and that we talk about compositional bias and, and what actually is sold and how that can distort and skew. Uh, the data, but the, yeah, we haven't really touched too much on this idea of the, the improvement costs that don't get taken into account. And it can uh, be. It's really important. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it can be. It really can be. I mean, mm. when, we, when we look at data, and I'm sure you're the same, mm. when we look at data, mm. we, we look at, well, what has sold, yes, mm. but what's also been spent on that property? Mm-hmm. And after you've sort of been around a while, you can you can get a bit of a rough idea how much they've spent on a renovation. But that's not an individual property, but when you're looking at aggregated data, no yeah. one's... Generally thinking about that. Well, you, you really, the only way you can do it is by pulling apart every single solitary yeah. sale and it's possible. Yeah. It takes a lot, a lot of man of hours and a lot of time and. Well, it's where it comes down mm. to the market knowledge is it's a shortcut to that. But actually you mentioned earlier about all your data comes to RAIV. Now I know it's different down in Victoria versus, you know, in many other states. Mm. Um, like your rental, actually, no, our our vacancy rates comes from the REI in New South Wales as well. Now, there's some particular data that comes from the REIV that's quite unique, from what I understand. Well, all data. Da- if you're an REI member as a as a as a real estate agent in, in Victoria, you must put your sales on within 24 hours, and they do it for many different reasons as mm. well. They want to make sure they've got market share in their mm. area and so forth. So, 99% of the time, and every day, normal established house is on there, but of course off the plan, mm. type of different mm. things and new housing estates, of course, they're not on there. They're only on there retrospectively after they settle and, of course, it goes to the State Revenue Office. Yeah. State Revenue Office then, of course, it gets reverse engineered, put into the data and you could look at data three years later, but who really cares about data three years old? Mm. <laughs> so 
So, again, in those outer areas, problem. In the inner areas, mm-hmm. not so much a problem. 99.9% of the data that you need is, is, is on or is in the REIV, but data is only as good as it gets put in. Mm. So, for instance, you know, um, it, it's amazing how many times you have a look at data and it says it's a house and you look at it and it's clearly not a house. <laughs> it's clearly a townhouse or it's right, clearly yeah. a villa or um, it's, it's, it's not a house. Um, and so data, again, is, is, a, is a big part of our, our world and I guess we try to look at that data and make sure that that data is actually is correct for our clients and making mm-hmm. sure that they, they're, they're not lied to, they're told the truth. This is exactly realistically what this property is most likely going to grow up at if you're mm-hmm. to grow up grow for or grow at if you look at the same type of property that hasn't had any improvements, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, or if they do if you do do improvements, here's another example of, you know, other properties that are sort of sold in those sort of areas. Um just just not really good data. So you said um around the people moving, I think it was a really interesting point how you said people in the you know, the house and land packages pockets and then when their kids get a bit older they start thinking about schooling and then they think actually you want to send them to you know, more established areas where there's potentially, you know, better schools. Um, that's kind of a movement of people. It's kind of like a brain drain, right? It's also an income drain. Yes. So the high incomes in that area leave, mm. which means that the growth in that suburb kind of starts. And this is what happens, like, as Adelaide as a suburb, as a city, for example, a lot of high incomes leave and go to Melbourne yep. or they go to Sydney, and that's you know, slows down the growth there. Where are all these high incomes kind of flowing in Melbourne? And, you know, how, like, you know, and what sort of pockets do you? Because they they will probably gravitate to a few pockets because of affordability. And where are they going? Okay, so thirty percent of our um, income comes from building. Thirty percent of our income comes from medical services. So when you look at medical services, hospitals, doctors, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, those particular type of areas, there's actually restrictions around how far they can be away from a hospital. There's actually rules mm. around it um, and how long it takes them to get to a hospital, like obstetricians, mm. for instance. So when you're looking at um, those areas, where do they want to be? Well, they want to be as close to those hospitals as they can. Where are they? Well, they're all in the city, East Melbourne. They're in Melbourne, Camberwell. They're, they're all in those, those suburbs that are a few k's out from the CBD. Uh, if we go Bayside, we start yeah. in Albert Parks and Middle Parks and St Kilda's. What, you're saying there's no hospitals further out? There are. There definitely <laughs> are hospitals f- f- further out, but it's probably in regards to price-wise where people would prefer to live, um, yeah. whether they can mm. depends on their income. Mm-hmm. Um, but those inner suburbs also have scarcity. There is yep. just no more land around. There mm-hmm. is no more land going to be produced. Um, they also now have restricted in regards to how far they can break land up. So right, yep. we've recently had some laws changed here in Victoria where, yep. you know, you pretty much could do whatever you like. Now you have to have 35% garden space if, you have, if mm. your land is over, you know, X in size. Um, and so where our our appetite for everyone breaking up land and building mm. townhouses has restricted to a degree. It's sort of funny, isn't it? Because we're talking about increasing density and yet that the government does have to, whether it's local government or state government, has to put in place those development control plans that actually mm. make sure that you don't actually ruin um, all the housing stock that you have. They have, and they've, they've done that, but they have then gone the complete opposite around train stations and shops. Mm. Yeah. And effectively, again, they're building the wrong stock. Mm. So where... Um, because that's one of the observations I had in Melbourne is that, um, you know, a few years ago I was uh, – my pa was at Box Hill Hospital, yep. right, and I was just, you know, got out of the hospital, was there all day, kind of went for a drive, and I was just like, there's a beautiful house and then there's an apartment block that's three levels up next door. And I'm thinking, how has that got through council? I mean, you wake up one day and you've got a three-level apartment block behind your back. And then I kind of kept driving, that's a bit weird. 
went next street and it happened again. And I was thinking something is going on in this council. And then I kind of switched onto it. And then every time I drive around suburbs in Melbourne, you could just see that the council rules were just so relaxed and people were just building whatever they want. But is that because the state government has put in place, you know, imposed uh, requirement? Because in New South Wales, for instance, the state government has imposed, you know, a, a density planning. I, mm. I don't know the exact name for it. So the councils have to comply by allocating which parcels of land or which areas are going to be sort of medium and high density. Is that what's that's happened exactly here? what's happened to you? So, so, yeah, so it is a plan. Pro- so it's in a- the process of all those houses will ultimately get knocked down. Is that basically that's, what you're it's, it's called transition. Right. Yeah. Transition is the favourite word that mm. if you ever love a, if you ever talk to any developers and you use the word transition, it's mm. a it's the word they hate the most. But mm. every every rezoning has a transitional period yeah. from date X to date Y. And you've got some poor bugger that's holding out. And, and it's like <laughs> playing Monopoly. Yeah. It's like yeah. playing Monopoly and they've got the little red one in the middle mm. and someone else owns the other two. But, yeah. um, but effectively those areas have been rezoned and they're called residential growth zones. Mm. Um, yeah. Those residential growth zones are a tradition, is, a, is a transitional zone and it sort of says, okay, well, as of 2013, you can build three levels. Mm. But if you go to Box Hill right now, you'll see that they're 33 levels. Yes. Mm, yeah. And they are humongous. God. And it's yeah. and it's whether it's appropriate or not, I guess, is probably subjective opinion. Mm. My subjective opinion may be different to others. Um, but I, I personally think that what they're also building there, you're really going to work out, well, is that appropriate for Melbourne as a whole? Um, it, it, it may be in the future, but right now they're building apartments in areas where realistically, they, they now can't even sell them. Mm. Um, China, what about the townhouses, though? Like, yep. I, I noticed that, you know, that I agree, that was actually around hospitals. So what you yep. said about hospitals made a lot of sense because yep. that's actually where it was. This, this. But the townhouses, I also noticed in those, in places like Brighton, yep. in places around kind of um, Wontona or, yep. you know, the inner east sort of thing or outer east, yep. um, are they, did they kind of let the rules go a bit too relaxed on building townhouses? And now they've kind of tried to scale it back. Yes, they have. And that's what happened in 2017. That's right. why they said we want some garden space. We don't want you to be putting five townhouses on a 700 square metre block of dirt in you know, uh, an outer suburb. Yes. yes, in an inner suburb like a Brunswick, do whatever you like. Re- regentrify the industrial areas, make them residential, go as high as you like. We, we want people there. But we want them in places like a Brunswick or we want them in places where it's uh, literally, you know, the ride a push bike to, to, to work type of thing. Yeah. Um, but when it's in the outer suburbs, we were finding that there was, we're not finding, there are a lot of construction that was taking place out there, which is, is just inappropriate. And inappropriate mm. is the right mm. word to use. Happy for the developer to make some money, no problems, that's that's normal. But realistically, who wants to buy them? Why do you want to buy them? And why are they building them? What quality are they building in that will stand the test of time? Now, the 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 um, I guess the litmus test in that is really looking at ones that were built 20 years ago, walking through them, yeah. And you don't need to be in property to work out whether the quality is good or not. <laughs> yeah. If they last for twenty years, I tell you what, there's you know we've got <laughs> that, yeah. that's that's a long time for some buildings. I yeah. think what's the the, one, the problem with this is though because if you go back to 2016 and you look at what some of the first home buyers, mm-hmm. let's say they grew up in these outer suburbs and they wanted to live in that suburb because their parents are there and their yep. sisters and brothers and um, and they wanted to buy a house in that area. Back in 2016, they were competing with a developer. And they won the auction and they paid a million dollars for this house in the outer suburbs. Mm. But a developer was buying that for a million dollars because they knew they could get four townhouses on yeah. it. profit. Now, developer goes, I can only get three townhouses on it. And so developers have kind of left the market. That they have. And mm. so what you found is that, you know, these first home buyers that were buying in these areas for a million dollars, the house is now only worth seven, eight hundred because they're only competing with other first home buyers. And 
have you started to see that in some areas? Not not so much. I mean, the the price the prices realistically in Melbourne for most areas, we probably had a correction of let's say the top end up to about twenty percent. The top right. end, the top top end, because realistically, if you had a five million dollar house, why on earth were you selling? You had to mm. sell. Um, most people had a $5 million house, wasn't selling because there's no yep. reason to sell. Yep. Down the lower end, um, they were selling because they had to sell. But generally speaking, most people also, I mean, we didn't really have dire consequences. We didn't have people mm. losing jobs. We didn't have interest rates of, you know, 18%. We didn't, yeah. there, was, there, was, there was none of that happening. Um, but these younger people that were buying these houses in those outer sort of suburbs uh, and sort of competing against developers to a, to a degree, mm. um, it is good that they've changed over some of the rules not so much about the first home buyer versus developer. I think yeah. at the end of the day, the market will work that part out yeah. um, realistically. And I also think that our as a, as a society, culturally, we're changing too. No longer do you, do, do you, are you born into society and all of a sudden you're, you know, your mum and dad lived in a beautiful suburb like Camberwell and all of a sudden when I grow up, I'm going to have a house in Camberwell as well. Yeah. That was almost a God-given right mm. 25 years ago and we're all – that was just normal and you never mm. ever thought that, okay, well, I had to buy an apartment first and I had to buy a villa and then I had to buy a townhouse and then I had to save up lots and lots and lots and have three kids and then get a job that's earning me $500,000 a year and then I can buy a house. Mm. But that's probably what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. It's just a matter of how fast it gets there. Um, the difference between having a property and renting, I think there is going to be a huge difference between those those two. And I think within the next 10, 15, 20 years, we're really going to see the difference between you know, the difference of people renting and the difference of people who own property. Yeah. Because the transaction costs are so huge. I mean, we talk about housing affordability and we talk about the fact that we have a lot of people living in houses with five bedrooms and only yeah. one of them being used. Well, the problem is, is because, as we were saying before, if they sell their house and they move into a, a home, you need to have a $1.5 million bond to move into a home. Now, you, granted, you might be able to buy one. You might be able to get 800 and 750 or 500 and et cetera, et cetera. But for the nice ones, they're about yeah. 1.5. Yeah. When yeah. you're selling a $2 million house for $1.5 million uh, and it's just a bond and you don't own it, mm. there's a problem. Now, there are businesses out there that are actually taking advantage of the fact of that and they're saying, well, no, it's a, you know, you, yeah. you can buy and build your own. Um, but I do think that that's, that's, that's a more of a cultural change that will happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole going renting and rent vesting, which was all the rage, you know, two, three years ago, is a risky strategy because you haven't got a home and one day you might want to own a home, whether that's family reasons or health reasons or work reasons. Uh, and then how do you transition back from a, you know, a rent vesting strategy to home ownership? Um, and so if you haven't, you just think I'm just going to rent forever and your circumstances change and you want a home, you've got to be really careful. Um, and so, do your numbers. Yeah. You're really good to do your numbers because you're yeah. paying tax on that property now as yeah. well. Yeah, well, You've, that's exactly it's, it, And if it? you actually do your yeah. numbers and you start working on capital gains tax and thanks God a capital gains tax didn't change in May, <laughs> yes. um, we won't even yep. get into that conversation. But if 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 they do go and rent vest, you know, realistically, it, it, they really have to be a really smart investor to do yes. that because they really have to be buying in a bloody good location. Yeah. And you really do have to time things well, and that's hard. I mean, you know, yeah. as, as professionals, you can't really. But none of us. Yeah. Time. No one's yeah. got crystal balls. Yeah. You you see things after it's happened, not before it's happened. Yeah. Mm. You can guess all you want, and that's really all you're doing. Yeah. But rent vesting, I don't disagree with in any way, shape, or form. But I think it's really hard to make the numbers work yeah, really, really well when you start adding in capital gains tax. Yeah, yeah. I think it's funny. I was talking about Uber driver on the way to the airport this morning, and um. He was saying that the idea of buying a property really scares him 
And I'm saying, mm. why? Is it the amount of money? Is it the commitment? Is it, you know, what is it? Because, you know, you might lose money. What is it that scares you? And he's like, um, basically it came down to he didn't want to commit to living in the one place for that long. Mm. And so, you know, from a millennial's point of view who actually want he doesn't have kids, you mm. know, and, and so until he gets kids that might all change, you know, yeah. that, that surely will change. Yeah. But until that point, you know, the idea of rent investing is actually probably a really good idea because it gives him all that flexibility. Mm. He can still, he can bounce yeah. around doing whatever he wants. He knows that he's got himself an asset that's doing something, yeah. albeit not in as favourable tax mm. Um, situation, but you know it's better than doing nothing. I would think. Totally agree. Uh, mm. I, I, yeah. I completely agree. And, and the millennials are different. I mean, the, the, I think the millennials. Um, I think sometimes they get a bad rap. Uh, mm. I, I love the millennials. I think millennials are quite smart. I think they're they've, this they've, is one. Yeah. <laughs> but, they're, but, they're, but they're taking a different view. They've taken a completely different view. I don't think they're as property obsessed <clears throat> as what you know. Sort of uh, downsides. Well. It's a yeah, life it stage is. thing, though. It is. No. It, is it is a life stage thing. But, but yeah. I think yeah. that also they're, they're starting to change around the way they think. Like the the, the millennials go lifestyle first. It's, it's lifestyle and location, and and you mean it. Like you ask people, what's your most important thing? And the absolute first thing they if they come back and they say, well, I need three bedrooms, two bathrooms. You're a house person. And yeah, no matter what they say, oh, but, but location's the most important thing. But the first thing they said was, oh, three bed, two bath, uh, go two living areas. You, you know they're a house person. Yeah. Whereas most millennials, you ask the same question is, shops, yeah. beach, walking distance, I have a little you dog. You know, I've got a bit of a theory on this. I mean, we, you know, like I'm obviously Gen X and, and when I was the equivalent of a millennial, as in when I was the mm. age that millennials are now, they were my priorities. Like I yeah. actually think yeah. we all forget that mm. when we're younger and we don't have kids and everything and we – and that's all what we want, yeah. you know. So I just think that this is a human condition in a privileged society in which we live, yeah. you know what I mean? Because the old smashed avocado thing, well, you know, that's that's a hallmark of privilege. Yeah. But it's also cultural. I mean, you've got to add culture into it as well. I mean, that's, and it's also what you're just saying is is very Australian culture, mm. but we do a very multicultural City, mm. and so those different cultures all mixed up together all have very different mm. belief systems. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like very, mm. very different belief yeah. systems, yeah. and so really, it's almost impossible to sort of you know put them all into one one bucket. Yeah, um, definitely. However, what you do realise is that even though they may have different belief systems to start with, yeah. <laughs> after a period of time, yeah. you'll find that they all oh, become one shoot. culture. Yeah. yeah, and they and, and that, <laughs> that great part, Australian dream. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. really does. It, so it's alive and well. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, David, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. I have a great, I, I have a great dumbo and it, it took me about one and a half seconds to come up with it um, <laughs> without naming names, obviously. Um, as a buyer advocate, we, we, we have, you know, a lot of people, of course, give us a call and uh, <laughs> make inquiries and so this forth. before you were called advisory. <laughs> this is actually back when we were advisory. Yeah. Um, but we would have them um, have, have a lead come through and this one particular person would um, give us a call. And the first time that they called us was back in 2000. And back in 2000. <laughs> Multi-repeat. Multi I love offender. it. So we, we, we probably talked to this person, let's call it Ralph, maybe five or six times between 2011 and 2018. Mm. And these particular people were waiting for the market to crash. Oh, yeah. Everyone mm. was waiting for the market to crash. And, they and then were when it did, did they buy? Absolutely <laughs> convinced the market was going to crash. Yeah. Now, to, to put things in perspective, 
2011, you could have bought a beautiful little house in a suburb like Melbourne, you know, Bayside suburbs, beach side of the highway for probably, let's call it sub 500. Would have needed some work, yep, yeah, but you could have bought a house for sub 500. Um, their budget means they would have been almost better to buy house cash. Yep, yeah, no, no, no loans, nothing else cash. But they kept waiting for the for the property market to come. You know, we'd keep calling them up. They'd keep calling us up a year or two later and, oh, yeah, what's happening right now? Still too <laughs> expensive. <laughs> I, I had to refrain from saying, has the market crashed yet? I don't know. So, mm. But you hadn't. Um, and, of course, then come 2018, market had moved. Um, they finally signed up. And, of course, um, when they finally signed up, um, they were always waiting for that, that bargain to come, bargain, come, bargain, come. But, but of course, their budget went from $400,000 to over a million dollars for half the property that they could have purchased. So whilst a lot of people try to sometimes say, oh, I'm going to wait for crashes, wait for movements, mm. wait for this, wait for that, we're not talking about stock. This isn't shares. We're talking about homes and people want a home and we're talking about owner-occupiers yeah. buying sort of stuff. I mean, we don't look at um, stock, you know, apartments or whatever it might be that uh, for investments, but for these type of homes, they're always in demand by the owner-occupiers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so unfortunately, you know, prices in those sort of areas um, have traditionally gone up and up and up and up and up, and unfortunately, mm. this was one one property Dumbo that um, uh, instead of paying four hundred thousand dollars when they really could have back mm. in two thousand and eleven, would have paid over a million dollars for half the property in half the condition. Yeah. Uh, in two thousand and nineteen. Oh, eight years later. So yeah. Sad. I think you're right. When it's the home, it's a bit different. You know, if if you kind of would be very careful gambling with that because the consequences are huge from a lifestyle point of view to the family and renting and etc and so you've got to be really careful you know investments you might want to say i want to gamble with it right i'm going to take a bet that in 12 months time it's going to be cheap you know you could be lose you could win but um from a home point of view you're really dangerous i'm getting that quite a lot at the moment yep. um where uh you know there's been a everyone's calling it the dead cat bounce um and so you know like the, the market's crashed but it's recovering and it's not going to survive and then it's going to go further down lower because in shares it does this you know it um you know, we oh, right. it, when it hits the bottom, um, everyone thinks it's the bottom, and so then everyone kind of jumps in, yep. and then it, you know, demand runs out, and then it goes back to like it was. And a lot of people in you know investment world think that this is a bit of a dead cat bounce in the property market, and um, you know it's got to be really careful because you know it's not like investment markets. You know, there are home buyers entering, mm. there's pent up demand, and. Well, I think also the interesting thing is that this is definitely not this dead cat bounce or the yeah. V. We've got a bit of a V curve at the moment, you know, in terms yeah. of Sydney, it's a very pointy bottom. Mm. Um, it's not being propped up by investors. Yeah, no. You know, it is still that pent up demand is coming from owner occupiers, which is that desire for a home requirement, need for a home. So, which is a lot more sustainable in terms of a market than mm. if just investors were flooding in being speculative. So, so yes, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of. And yeah. We're the same here. I mean, yeah. it, it is a different type of asset class. I mean, at the end of the day, A, it can't be transacted very easily. Mm. It, it costs money and it costs time to transact those particular properties. Mm-hmm. Uh, B, has emotion involved. And, it, and, it, and I guess it's one of those basic necessities. Everybody does need a home. And I guess as people um, in society do get a little bit more money, they want to live in the nicer suburbs. Exactly that's, right. that's normal. Aspirational. Um, and they also <laughs> do they, they, they do make movements. It isn't just simply one purchase and then we live there for 30, 40, 50 years like they did back in the 1950s. Mm. Mm. They move and, they, and they're moving up. Yeah. And, and if they're not moving up, they're not moving at all. And, and I think what happens is in a lot of those, those cases and the people that we see with those owner-occupiers, it's, it's local owner-occupiers. 
Yeah. And so local owner yeah. occupiers that really control those markets. The investors can come and go and they can come in and they can come and go. But realistically, the owner occupiers yeah. are the ones who say, well, if I have to pay a little bit extra to live in the place I want to live, who cares? It's the yeah. people trading up within the same suburb, exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, and that and that not wanting to leave and all those things are what, yeah. what, what sustains an area. Yep. Well, David, that's been... Great insight into what's happening in Melbourne at the moment, and we definitely appreciate that. And also the detail in terms of sort of a lot about that base size, mm. some of the some of the inner east, you know, some yep. tips around what's happening in the east, inner east as well. Um, the similarities and differences between what we talk about all the time, what I talk about all the time, because I'm so familiar with Sydney. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is. Well, following on from what well, we're talking to David about, you know, those houses and people that are living in places that are in transition, you know, when the local government has changed the zoning and you start to see these apartment buildings going up and you still got the old houses sitting in between. Well, as a buyer, you definitely don't want to buy one of those houses unless you're actually thinking about redeveloping it yourself. Mm-hmm. But also if you are owning one of those houses and, and you've been approached by a developer, then there's some real soul searching that you need to do before you decide whether you are either a going to sell or not going to sell because i think what you know i've actually been doing a little bit of research on this and and read stories about people have held out when a developer's come along and they've bought up the surrounding properties Mm. and often these people are so stubborn they don't think about what it's going to be like to be the only house left behind when you've got apartments at you know both sides and that back over the back fence yep. and then your house is on a single block that's undevelopable if that's mm. even a word so that its value has gone down significantly so yeah. it, it was in inflated because a developer can do things with it and then it ends up being worth less than it was in the first place mm. before it even got rezoned because nobody wants to buy that tiny little parcel of land yeah so i think that whilst um, and this is not compulsory acquisition. This is if you happen to be in, you know, owning a home in an area that has changed and has become a, a, attractive mm. to developers. You know, obviously banding up with your neighbours is one thing, um, but holding out comes mm. at extraordinary costs. And I think that quite often people don't, or people that are inclined to hold out, may not actually spend the time really considering what life is going to be like afterwards mm. if they do hold out. Yeah, I mean, if you get a pretty silly offer for your place, you've got to always consider it, even if you don't want to go for the hassle of moving or you don't like the whole idea of having to sell out to a developer or something like that. I mean, um, it always reminds me of those pictures on, on the internet where you've got a house and the two freeways built around yes. the house and it's kind of like, you know, that someone was being stubborn there, but, I mean, who wants <laughs> to buy that house going forward? So well, yeah, you've got to be careful. I mean, in these areas around these density zones, um, Yes, you would have got an uplift if you sold, but if you don't sell, you may you kind of shoot yourself in the Lost foot. Money. So, um, you know, you wouldn't really want to own a property in these areas where they have changed the rules if you were looking for a home, unless you're going to wanted to sell it to a developer. Because over time, um, you know, you really the livability of those suburbs is going to decrease generally because of more people and more cars and mm. um, you know more apartments and things like that. Your privacy and all sorts of things shadowing exactly. So and construction, yeah, it's the whole process. I, I think of three examples, and I've been trying to find evidence of this one, but I remember when I was a kid down in Southgate in Sylvania. So there's a whole big shopping centre that was built and there was one person, I say a guy, I presume it was a guy, hmm. <laughs> not that women can't be stubborn, but there was one guy who 
refused to sell. And basically what they did was build a solid, you know, brick wall, six mm. metres high or more, at to both sides and at the rear of this guy's house. So you drive along. And as kids, we sit, you know, get the parents to drive us along as a bit of sightseeing tour to have a look at this crazy guy that held out and ended mm. up living basically with surrounded by brick walls. Mm. But there's another one in Lewisham that I saw in the paper a couple of years ago where a, a semi-detached house is attached to, I think, a five-storey block of apartments. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and I kid you not. So um, I'll find the link looks for like that a little greenhouse news story. But it looks absolutely ridiculous. I think how the hell could that have got through absolutely a, like a Federation or Edwardian semi-attached to a five-storey apartment block? And another one that there was a guy, an older guy, you know, because often it is, you know, these are older people that own mm. these homes and it is very disruptive. But I think what they're not realising is that life is never going to be the same again there anyway, you know. Mm. And so this poor old old man in his 90s, I think, you know, his wife had died through the whole process of of all the surrounding properties being sold and, and mm. redeveloped and he's basically sitting there, one little house with his backyard and his yeah. house hoist overlooked by <laughs> hundreds of apartments. I mean, yeah. I mean, I walk past this one on George Street every day in the city, um, the hot next to Wynyard Station and the whole Wynyard Station is getting redeveloped. Every single building is going, going up and there's this one property which is like Crazy John's is the advertising. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, why didn't the person own this property sell it? You mm. know, like... You know, it's a great block of land. I'm sure every other development would have wanted that land at the point. My gut is I reckon they held out mm. and they've tried to sell it on the private market and it hasn't sold. Um, you can see it's still for sale, big banner on it. Oh, God. And so that little property, is it's because it's not a very good block, um, is going to be surrounded by all these big, you know, beautiful new buildings. And, and it's only actually worth something if it could be amalgamated into a bigger site. Yeah. You know, on its own, it's not really worth that much, right? Well, I don't think because the developers mm. like, I don't really go, I'm not going to make enough money doing no, it's that. Too it's too too. It doesn't really, you know, there's not enough profit margin. Mm. So maybe one day they'd be able to sell it again. But you're talking another cycle. So yeah. they missed the boat. So they probably got greedy. And so I think that's another thing in these situations. If you get a good offer, don't look a gift horse in the mouth of yeah, what they say. Totally. Join us next week when we put a developer in the hot seat. Now, Rod Ferring, I don't think he really knew what he was in for. Rod is the CEO of Fraser's Property Australia and we had a very, very interesting and informative discussion all around buying brand new property, building brand new property, the development control problems, the certification problems, the process problems, the defects, valuations, settlement risk, all of the above, all the things that are risks around buying off the plan, we tackle with someone who has extraordinary experience in this space and insights and we learn a lot. So please join us. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.